for joining us with Ask a Historian. I'm Matthew Wilkinson, historian with Heritage Mississauga. We invite you to send in your questions to history at heritagemississauga.org, and we'll explore the fascinating stories of the city of Mississauga and beyond every other week. Like, subscribe, and follow us and stay connected with Heritage Mississauga. Joining us this week for Ask a Historian is Royal Historian Carolyn Harris. Dr. Harris is an instructor in history with the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies. She received her PhD in European history from Queen's University in 2012. Her writing concerning the history of monarchy in the UK, Europe, and Canada has appeared in numerous publications, including the Global Mail, Ottawa Citizens, Smithsonian Magazine, Reader's Digest, the BBC History Magazine, and others. She's also the author of three books. I think it's still three, it might be four. Uh, Magna Carta and its Gifts to Canada, Queenship and Revolution in Early Modern Europe, and Raising Royalty, A Thousand Years of Royalty, of Royal Parenting. Um, and our topic, first of all, thank you for spending some time with us here. I know you're in incredibly busy and going to be busier in the next couple of weeks ahead, I think. And uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time, Carolyn. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so we have upon us uh, on May 6th, the uh, coronation, something most of us haven't seen, or if you have mm -hmm. seen, you have mm -hmm. vague memories of the last one, uh, a, a royal coronation, the last one being in 1953. But on May 6th, uh, King Charles III will be uh, will, will have his coronation. And I just wanted to touch on that, this, this moment in time, because it really, when you think of the passage of time, 1953, a lot has changed since then. Uh, I was looking at some of the photographs of uh, of uh, Queen Elizabeth II's coronation, and uh, I dare say our our technology has changed, or, or mm -hmm. the mediums will digest this moment in time of change. What are some of the things? If you uh, just kind of think, this will likely be the most documented, or at least probably the most watched coronation, uh, British coronation in history. Uh, how, how are some of those changes going to? How, how can we experience this moment in time with all of the new technology we have out there? Like, I'm just curious how you how this plays out from the from a historian's perspective. This this incredible moment to engage with this this piece of history. Well, in 1953, it was an innovative decision uh, to allow television cameras into Westminster Abbey to film the entire ceremony except for the sacred anointing. And this allowed for audiences, not just in the United Kingdom, but in the wider Commonwealth and the wider world to share in the festivities to a much larger degree than had been possible previously. And there were a lot of logistical challenges that not only would there be 8,000 guests in 1953 in Westminster Abbey, the Abbey was entirely full, but placement for all of these uh, BBC cameras there were controversies about how exactly the filming would unfold. Would there be close-ups? Would there simply be an overview from a distance of the ceremony? And there were a lot of concerns that something might go wrong on, uh, on television, that everything went very smoothly. But certainly some of the memoirs of those involved suggest that something could have happened in front of the cameras. One of the, the, the new Queen's Maids of Honor at Lady Glen Connor 
uh, notes in, in her memoirs that at one point she thought she was going to faint and another court here was just subtly holding her up. And <laughs> she was very concerned, not only would this happen, but it would happen on television cameras. So all the people who were there in 1953 were very conscious that the coronation was being televised. And certainly pre then Prime Minister Winston Churchill was quite concerned about the strain on the young queen of that level of public scrutiny. But Queen Elizabeth II took her role as head of the Commonwealth very seriously and thought that this was a way for the Commonwealth to share in the festivities. And the footage was flown to Canada to be shown on the CBC as quickly as possible. And so this was the first transatlantic television broadcast. And it had this wider cultural impact as many people in the United Kingdom and more widely in the Commonwealth bought their first television sets in order to watch the coronation and then hosted coronation parties, which introduced television to more people who perhaps went to a coronation party and and thought they should buy their own television. So 277 million people around the world watched the 1953 coronation on television. And in a sense, this kickstarted the television industry in wow. that this was a big news event that was unfolding in this way. The previous coronation, 1937, there had been cameras present uh, for certain aspects of the ceremony uh, in the Abbey and the uh, and the procession uh, you know, to and from the Abbey. So, so people who were watching film newsreels in movie theaters would have seen some footage from George VI coronation, but it was a very different experience in 1953 to watch almost the entire ceremony unfold. And the current King Charles III was present for part of the ceremony. At, you know, he was just uh, four years old, seated between yeah. his grandmother, uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, and uh, his aunt princess margaret and his grandmother brought a handbag little you know toys to keep him amused as that was another uh, uh, possible issue that might arise having a young child there even in the audience but aside from commenting it's mummy when uh when queen elizabeth ii processed into the abbey otherwise they, he sat fairly quietly uh for a portion of the ceremony before departing and and princess anne's commented one of her earliest memories was knowing something important was happening and that charles was going and she was not and, and not being pleased about that <laughs> Even, right? <laughs> even as a very uh, even as a very young child that we see both young prince charles and princess anne uh, uh on the balcony so for king charles the third he has been in the public eye his entire life like he was heir yeah. to the throne from when he was a small child he becomes prince of wales in the, the late 1950s and then is invested at Carnarfon castle in 1969 so king charles the third his whole life has been preparing for this role but has also built up this uh, the, the, this public image as a philanthropist as well and an environmental advocate and has been involved in a lot of different causes. And as he stated in his accession day address, that many of these causes will then be taken up by others as he will be focused on this role as head of state. So King Charles III has been in the public eye his whole life. But in 2023, the media climate is very different. It is much harder to control how information uh, spreads 
Uh, certainly there are similarities to 1953 in that the anointing will not be filmed, that this is seen as a sacred moment. But people around the world will be viewing the ceremony in all sorts of different contexts. There will, of course, be television viewing parties, but many people will be viewing online or, or viewing while following social media and seeing how people are commenting. So there's a very much a sense of the world coming together and through social media and the internet being able to see each other's comments on the ceremony in real time. So the process had begun in 1953 in terms of technology, making the world a smaller place, but that's even more so today in, uh, in, in 2023. I, I, I never, I never paralleled a coronation to TV sales before that, that, <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I, I can see it because I, I know there were examples locally of, you know, the, the, the Union Jack being flown with pride outside of a house, you know, which normally doesn't display it for the coronation. It was a big deal. In, in 50 yes. It's, uh, and people who were alive at the time tend to remember uh, what it was like uh, to, to watch the coronation on television. Sometimes there's accounts of, of parents trying to work the horizontal dials and get these the, these televisions working in the early 1950s and, you know, neighbors crowding into living rooms. So there's uh, people today who were small children at the time of the 1953 coronation who remember this being an event. And of course, in the United Kingdom, despite the, the pouring rain in 1953, uh, people camped out on the street in order to get to get a good spot to see the coronation procession pass by as the accession of Queen Elizabeth II was seen as the start of a new Elizabethan age and the United right. Kingdom and had been through a lot during the Second World War. And this was seen as the beginning of this new and, and hopeful age. Now, events later in the 1950s, such as the Suez Crisis, led to changing attitudes in terms of whether this was indeed a period of rebirth uh, for Britain. But at the time of the coronation, there was a great deal of optimism and interest in celebrating and in a worldwide context that Queen Elizabeth II was being crowned as Queen of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and her other um, Commonwealth realms at that time. So there was a very strong uh, global focus as well, which we, we also see today. We, we uh, I know the, 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 process or the the ceremony of coronation is steeped in history and steeped in tradition mm -hmm. uh, and I, I do want to go through some of those symbolisms and some of the traditions with you but uh, Charles uh, King Charles has kind of also shown himself that someone who doesn't always follow tradition he, he mm -hmm. is very forward thinking very environmentally concerned um, and has lots of causes that are dear to him are, are do you know if there is it secrets or is there is there things that will break with tradition in terms of the the ceremony itself I think a big change is the guest list that in 1953, with those 8,000 guests, there were certainly guests from around the world, but there was also a strong focus on the entire British aristocracy coming together, the peers and the and, and the peeresses all, you know, processing into the Abbey. And this being a very elite occasion, even though it, it, the broadcasts were enjoyed by people around the world. Whereas we see with King Charles III, there's going to be 2,000 guests, so a quarter of the number of guests there was in 1953. And a lot of them are military veterans, community leaders, uh, those who are involved in charity 
charities that have royal patronage, as yeah. well as diverse guests from around the world. So there's an effort to democratize the guest list, to have representatives of, as well of, uh, of various faith traditions and religions, even though this is a ceremony where Charles III is being affirmed as defender of the faith of the, the, the Church of England. We are seeing the inclusion in terms of the guest list of representatives of other faiths as well. So there have been some efforts to democratize the guest list and also, we're seeing a, a, a shorter procession as well, uh, leaving uh, Westminster Abbey. So there's always a balance, and we see this with the history of coronations as well, that if a coronation is too extravagant, as was the case with King George IV, often that's widely resented. But if a coronation doesn't include some of the ceremonial that's expected, that can also attract criticism. So George IV's brother uh, will William IV, who, who wondered why he needed to have a coronation at all and then agreed to have a, 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 a much uh, a quieter one without a coronation banquet, that, that his ceremony was nicknamed the Half Crown Nation. So Queen Victoria, when she came to the throne in 1837, had these two examples of her two uncles, sort of the extravagant one and the one who didn't want a coronation at all and had to find a balance uh, there. And, and so we see th throughout history that challenge challenge of, uh, of engaging the public, particularly in modern times, is there's an interest in seeing the regalia and these aspects of the ceremony that are that are very rarely seen in public outside of you know, displays at the Tower of London. But of course, today in the United Kingdom, there's also a cost of living crisis and higher uh, yeah. energy bills as well. So there's always a balance between the pomp and circumstance and the interest in seeing all of these glittering objects uh, in in use, but also sensitivity to how uh, ordinary people are living. I can say in in in, in downtimes, people also often are attracted by pageantry because it takes you to a another place uh, in a in a way. Yes, that was certainly the case when uh, the future Queen Elizabeth II was married in 1947 to Prince Philip. There were concerns at first that with war rationing still taking place in the United Kingdom after the Second World War and many people having suffered losses, would they be in the mood for a big celebration? But in fact, the, the royal wedding was very uh, well received. And in fact, Princess Elizabeth started receiving gifts from the public of canned goods and of clothing coupons like there being these concerns that that, that there, there wouldn't be enough for a big banquet and so uh, underprivileged seniors uh, receive baskets of some of this largesse of these canned goods that were arriving at the palace particularly from the united states is the portrayal of britain in the press in 1947 is that there's just not enough food to go around there so the the palace was receiving all of these gifts they uh, the princess elizabeth received hundreds of tins of pineapple from australia and and, and so it's interesting to see that that there was the, the, this interest in there in there still being uh, a, a big a, a big royal wedding at that time and in the coronation a few years later there was a lot of popular interest in this young queen and and sympathy for her as as Queen Elizabeth II had come to the throne at just the age of twenty five and then was being crowned sixteen months later that this was a, a young wife and mother uh, stepping into this role uh, with King Charles the third he's been in the public eye his whole life and he's in his 70s so his public image is different the public feels
feels as though they know him and his views on a variety of topics very yeah. well. They've known some of the challenges in his personal life. So it's a different connection in that Charles III's a very familiar figure, whereas there was a sense with Queen Elizabeth II that she was just beginning a very long lifetime of public service. Right, right. I, I, just, I find just the, the whole perspective you're bringing absolutely fascinating because I, I, some of those early coronation stories I, I know nothing about, to be honest, and, and I have read a great deal about 1953 and uh, looked at it in our historic newspapers. It was covered in the Port Credit Weekly, this the coronation of this young queen, but everything came off in a way of, you know, how young and beautiful she is. Right? Like, like yes. the, I think that was part of the sense of optimism. It wasn't the old stuffy monarchy anymore. Yes. Um, and and so, you know, I find, you know, flash forward in over uh, after an absolutely incredibly long reign for Elizabeth II, here we are at Charles now with no kind of living attachment to 53 in terms of, you know, viable memory within the community today that's being talked about. So I think the vast majority of our residents have never seen a coronation probably, or mm -hmm. at least have vague memories of one. Um, so when it comes to those traditions, that, that uh, the, the symbols, if you will, it, before we get into the individual symbols, uh, or some of them anyways, it, what's the structure of the day? Like what, 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 ha is there a certain flow that a coronation follows in terms of processes? Well, it's interesting that whereas many royal occasions like jubilees, weddings, funerals, christenings, many of these events, the ceremonial and the public aspects of it were really solidified during the reign of Queen Victoria in the 19th century with the invention of photography and then film. There was more and more demand for the public to be able to see some of these uh, ceremonies unfold, at least in part, and to feel as though that, that they were part of these ceremonies. But with the coronation, the coronation service was laid down by St. Dunstan, the Archbishop of Canterbury, in 973 for an Anglo-Saxon king, Edgar the Peaceable. This was not at the beginning of his reign. This was a sort of apotheosis uh, uh, after successes or, or earlier in his reigns. So he would have been about 14 years in do his reign when he had this big coronation at Bath Abbey. And it's interesting that Queen Elizabeth II in 1973 attended a commemoration service at Bath Abbey commemorating a thousand years of monarchy. So this is a ceremony that goes back a very long time. The Bible passages that are spoken of you know, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed King Solomon. Now a lot of those Bible passages have been set to music most famously by George Frederick Handel for the coronation of King George II uh, in a 1727. So these, uh, so this Anglo-Saxon rite certainly has been uh, transformed over time. But the but the basic order of service, there being a crowning, the, the, emphasizing the secular power, the anointing, em emphasizing the religious role of the monarch, the coronation oath, and the and, and the various members of the nobility and the clergy uh, uh, being there, and there being an acclamation um, of the monarch. That this day back uh, more than a thousand years and coronations have been taking place at Westminster Abbey since 1066. Uh, so the so the ceremony has evolved over centuries 
What's very striking is that the crown jewels are more recent. There have been mishaps over the years where the medieval regalia uh, were, were lost at various times. Uh, King John reputedly lost many of the crown jewels when his baggage train overturned in a marsh at, uh, during the, the First Barons' War after he repudiated uh, Magna Carta. And so his son, uh, Henry III, who also rebuilt Westminster Abbey, uh, at a, ended up having two coronation ceremonies, one very quickly when he succeeded to the throne and another a few years later. And then most significantly during the English civil wars, um, first there were crown jewels that were pawned um, by the by the royalists, by Charles I and his consort Henrietta Maria. And then the main pieces that were used for coronations were uh, were melted down or, or sold uh, by Oliver Cromwell and the parliamentarians is after the execution of Charles I in, in 1649, it was assumed that there would be no more kings and no more coronations. And also a lot of the medieval gems had gone out of fashion by that time that that we look at paintings that show um, Henry VIII's crown, for instance, we see these very large gems that look almost like you know, candies on a plum cake. And whereas as the centuries passed, the interest was more in faceted gems that shone. So what we think of as valuable historical artifacts that were being destroyed were seen as not only no longer needed, but as completely out of fashion in terms of, of what was beautiful. So when the monarchies restored in 1660, Charles II had to commission all new crown jewels. And so the St. Edward's crown that is only used for coronations dates from 1661 and, and the imperial state crown, uh, uh, which was uh, created later, uh, that, that's also used for state openings of parliament, is also comparatively modern. The one surviving piece of the medieval regalia is the anointing spoon, which we think dates back to Richard the Lionheart's time or his father, uh, Henry II. So there's the occasional survival and some of the gems used in individual crowns. There's a, a gem known as the Black Prince's Ruby the, uh, that, that has been associated with the son of King Edward III. So there's little bits and pieces of the medieval regalia. So we have this very medieval service with gems that date from the, the, the 17th century uh, onward. And then we see the, the coronation oath changing over time, reflecting the, the, the changing role uh, of the monarch, the transition uh, to a constitutional monarchy had an impact on the, the coronation oath. And then we see uh, going forward with the establishment of the British Empire, Queen Victoria's son, Edward VII, that was included in his oath, the dominions beyond the seas, as by that time, Canada and Australia were self-governing. So there's sort of a nod uh, acknowledging that there were these self-governing dominions. But by the coronation of King George VI in 1937, he is swearing to govern according to the laws of, uh, of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, that the, the countries are being named as we're after the Statute of Westminster by that time. And these are independent crowns. And then Queen Elizabeth II was being crowned queen of all of these uh, different independent countries. So in the coronation oath, we see an evolution from empire to commonwealth. So we have these we have this medieval ceremony. We have gems that from from the from the Stuart period through to the 20th century, and then we have this evolving coronation oath. And it's interesting that individual monarchs often found ways 
to personalize the ceremony for better or for worse, uh, re reflecting their own interests. We know King Charles III uh, greatly enjoys music and, and, and commissioning new pieces of music. So Andrew Lloyd Webber has been asked to write a, a new coronation anthem. And so this is a, a very longstanding interest of the current king. So we're seeing a very strong emphasis on new music being commissioned, uh, which we saw s uh, some previous monarchs uh, take an interest in this as well, most notably uh, George II's patronage of George Frederick Handel. Uh, but, but often individual monarchs find ways to personalize the ceremony, ways to cement their public image, but they're working within a framework that is centuries old, very different from other royal ceremonies where a lot of the traditions are, are comparatively recent. Interesting. I, I no idea it was steeped that far back and and did that connection to the handle and now Andrew Lloyd Webber. I mean, yep. those are, those are yes. fascinating. I, I, now I want to hear the song. Yes. <laughs> um, the, you mentioned St. Edward's crown. Um, mm -hmm. My understanding is that you only ever see it uh, worn during a coronation um what is the significance of of the crown and its role well westminster abbey was the original westminster abbey was commissioned by edward the confessor the second last uh, Anglo-Saxon king. So the abbey was built in its original form during Edward the Confessor's lifetime. And so his successor, his brother-in-law, Harold II, the last Anglo-Saxon king, is the first king to be crowned at Westminster Abbey. And William the Conqueror, once he defeats and kills Harold at the Battle of Hastings, he has his coronation at Westminster Abbey. And Edward the Confessor had a reputation for holiness. He'd never had children of his own. And it was thought that uh, it, it was thought that, that that he had remained chaste because he was extremely devout. There's been debates in terms of whether this was indeed the case, but at the time, that was how he was perceived, and there were miracles attributed to him. So the centerpiece of Westminster Abbey is uh, St. Edward's Shrine with the relics of, uh, of St. Edward the Confessor. And we see later medieval kings, even those uh, Norman kings, uh, taking a lot of interest in, uh, in Edward the Confessor, particularly Henry III, who rebuilt Westminster Abbey in the Gothic style. If you look at the Bayou Tapestry, you can see the rounded Romanesque arches of how it would have looked in Edward the Confessor's time or at the time of the Norman Conquest. Okay. And then it's rebuilt in its modern form by Henry III, and he named his son Edward after uh, Edward the Confessor. And now that seems like a typical royal name, but at the time, it's as though William and Catherine decided to name their son George Athelred, that it was seen as a very Anglo-Saxon throwback um, of a name, but it reflected Henry III's um, interest in, uh, in Edward the Confessor. And so the crown, uh, St. Edward's crown, was said to be the crown that had, that, that had crowned Edward the Confessor, and, and certainly due to various mishaps involving the crown jewels, it's not entirely clear if this same crown was being used um, uh, all the way through, but certainly that medieval regalia was uh, was melted down uh, during the English Civil Wars. But this was a, 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 but when Charles II commissioned new regalia, that he looked at drawings of what that crown had looked like and, and, and tried to emulate it as much as possible. And there's been speculation that he even tried to find evidence of, of, of where the old crown had been melted down and try to use some of those metals to reconstitute a, a, a new crown. So St. Edward's crown is a, is a crown that's very rarely seen 
in use. Uh, there was a documentary uh, uh, where uh, Alistair Bruce um, interviewed Queen Elizabeth II about the coronation regalia, and so those crowns were uh, were on display, and the Queen was reminiscing about what it was like. And with Saint Edward's crown being a a heavier crown that 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 she had rehearsed at home and and had had walked around Buckingham Palace wearing the crown, much to the delight of uh, Prince Charles and Princess Anne, because of how heavy this crown was, not all monarchs chose to use it. George IV wanted a, a flashy crown with, with lots of new diamonds, so it, which he quickly had to return those diamonds when he had financial issues afterwards. But George IV commissioned a new crown. And Edward VII, especially as he was a, a King Edward as well, he wanted to wear St. Edward's crown, but his coronation had to be postponed because he had appendicitis and had to have an emergency operation. So by the time his coronation took place, it was thought the heavy crown uh, would be uh, too much for him. So it's become the centerpiece of modern coronations, but this crown from 1661, not all monarchs uh, chose to use it. With the, the crown of the consort, as we're going to be seeing uh, Queen Camilla as a um, uh, being crowned as consort uh, as well. We haven't seen the crowning of a queen consort since 1937 with George VI and Queen Elizabeth, who became the queen mother. She's going to be using Queen Mary's crown, which was uh, which crowned the consort of King George V. Um, the, the 20th century uh, uh, Saxe-Coburg and, and Windsor consorts, Queen Alexandra, Queen Mary, and Queen Elizabeth, later the queen mother, all had uh, their, their own crowns commissioned. And often for royal consorts, there was this opportunity in the coronation to be able to present their own public image, uh, involve members of their own family in the procession. And we see that with Camilla, that her pages will include uh, her three grandsons and her grandnephew, whereas King Charles III will have his grandson, uh, Prince George, uh, William and Catherine's son. So we see, as well as the monarch having an influence on the on how the ceremony is shaped in the public image, we see the the consort as well having the, the having the, this public role, and Camilla's attracted a lot of attention because it was very different in 1953 that 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 Prince Philip was certainly there as one of the royal dukes, yeah, you know, right. paying homage to the queen, but but a male consort doesn't have that role in a coronation that a female consort does. So there's been right. a lot of interest in the consort's regalia uh, being in use and and. And Camilla stepping into this role, I I, I think it'll be fascinating to see because again we're flipping the genders here, so Camilla mm -hmm. does have a more mm -hmm. uh, prominent role than than Philip did as kind of standing beside. Um, what what this is also the head of state for Canada, the, the, the yes. speech, uh, for in King Charles the Third. What's happening in Canada to mark this occasion? Well, there has been a general announcement that the grounds at Rideau Hall will be opened up to the, the public and they're encouraged to come together and celebrate in Ottawa, that there will be a ceremony there and that the, and that provincial lieutenant governors will likely be holding their own ceremonies yeah. and garden parties there's been talk of speeches and art installations and musical <laughs> performances but it remains to be seen exactly how these events will unfold it's interesting in 1953 uh, Vincent Massey uh, who was the first uh, who was the first uh, ca Canadian born governor general believed part of his role as governor general was to lead the celebrations in Canada 
uh, like on Parliament Hill that he saw himself right. as having this this Canadian role. Now, in in, in twenty twenty three, King Charles the Third has expressed an interest in there being a lot of Indigenous participation in the in the procession. So, for the current Governor General, uh, Mary Simon, there may be a very different role uh, in the United Kingdom. But certainly, we're going to see celebrations in Canada. How exactly they unfold uh, remains to be seen. It's a passing moment, though, to engage with history at the moment that it's happening in Canada. I mean, this is a change of head of state that, again, we haven't seen since since 1953. Um, in terms of just, uh, you know, what we can uh, kind of connect with here in Canada, you know, often following a, a coronation, there are royal tours that take place. Is there anything yet known what might happen with a royal tour? It's likely we're going to see a coronation tour. Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip went on tour for months uh, over 1953, mm -hmm. 1954, and their children, Prince Charles and Princess Anne, remained in the United Kingdom. There's letters by Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, uh, their, their grandmother, about the children with little bulletin board pegs and a map tracing where their parents were <laughs> at any given time. So the Queen Mother sort of made this into a game of, you know, of tracing exactly where their parents were in the Where's world. Waldo? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Where, where's mom and dad? And, and so that this tour went on for months on on the on the royal yacht, uh, Australia, New Zealand, the uh, the, the Caribbean realms. Uh, in, in the case of uh, of Canada, Princess Elizabeth had visited in 1951, and she would visit again to open Parliament in uh, in 1957. So that so Canada wasn't part of that coronation tour in 1953, 1954. But it's interesting to see that at ceremonies on this tour and at the 1957 opening of Canada's Parliament, the Queen wore her coronation gown. So while there wasn't a local coronation taking place in these various parts of the Commonwealth, uh, Queen Elizabeth II was bringing aspects of that ceremony with her when she was presenting herself as Queen to these right. different parts of the Commonwealth. So I don't think King Charles III will be on tour for months uh, as as there are fewer working members of the royal family and also the and and also there there's a great deal of, of public engagements uh, within the United Kingdom with a uh, with a smaller uh, working royal family so right. So we're not likely to see a very long tour, but it's likely there will be uh, shorter visits to a, a number of the Commonwealth realms. And there's been discussion and debate as to whether the, the, this Commonwealth tour, once it's organized, should include more ceremonial in the Commonwealth realms. These are all independent countries. And while it may not be feasible to have one coronation after another, and certainly the crown jewels cannot uh, leave the United Kingdom after the circumstances of the English civil wars that's not permitted so 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 the crown jewels certainly cannot go on tour but whether there should be something resembling an installation ceremony uh, when the uh, when the monarch travels there's some historical press in his 1911 george v and queen mary traveled to india for the delhi durbar uh, at that time so so it'll be interesting to see whether within the context of a coronation tour some degree of ceremonials introduced of presenting uh the the, the, the new monarch uh, uh, to the, the the people of each of these countries and how debates and discussions will evolve in the Commonwealth uh, concerning the future of the monarchy is there was a great deal of personal regard for Queen Elizabeth II, even among people who were not monarchists or not 
uh, supporters of the constitutional monarchy. So we'll see with the coronation and, and King Charles III and Queen Camilla eventually on tour, how that shapes attitudes toward the monarchy in Canada and the wider world. I, it's a fascinating moment. And one of the things living in Canada now, we won't have to wait for the film to be flown over the Atlantic. <laughs> so uh, I know you'll be busy on the morning of the of the six. You're, I think you said you're on CBC Radio. Yes. Um, and I wish you luck. I wish you luck that early in the morning and and being <laughs> thank sharp you. as attack as you are. Um, oh, thank you. But there are so many ways to engage in this moment. There there will be festivities being held. I believe the the color green is going to be used in lighting up public buildings and federal buildings and the like. Yes, the color uh, of the new coronation emblem in Canada. Yeah, I saw I saw that on the, the Canadian Heraldic Authority with the uh, the new coronation emblem. Um, but thank you, uh, Doctor Doctor Harris, for uh, for sharing your your knowledge, your passion with us. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure the next couple of weeks are bound to be very busy for you. And I wish you all the best with that. Um, and for everyone joining us this week, thank you for spending some time with us here at Ask a Historian. Keep sending in your questions, and we'll explore the fascinating stories that are all around us every time that we have a new episode here on Ask a Historian. Like, subscribe, and follow us and stay up to date with all the things happening with Heritage Mississauga. And once again, Dr. Harris, thank you for joining us with Ask a Historian. Thanks so much. <laughs>